Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. HousingWire Daily examines the most compelling mortgage, real estate, and fintech articles reported from the HousingWire newsroom. Each afternoon, the HW Digital team provides our listeners with a deeper look into the stories that are helping move markets forward. Hosted and produced by Alcina Lloyd and Victoria Wickham. And now, here's our host. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Victoria Wickham, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today, you'll be listening to our Mortgage Desk segment with host Kelsey Ramirez. In this episode, Ramirez speaks to Mayor Brown partner Ori Lev about the most recent ruling in SELA law versus the CFPB. They talk about what this ruling will mean for other cases currently pending and what we can expect from the Bureau under the new presidential administration. But before we listen, here's a brief word from Housing Wire's news podcast. Right now, more than ever, the housing industry has been having honest conversations about how race impacts the home buying process. To heighten the discussion, Housing Wire is launching Honest Conversations, a new mini podcast series to examine the state of minority home ownership in America. For eight weeks starting in February, please join Housing Wire Daily each Wednesday as we aim to provide listeners with a greater perspective on how race, housing, and wealth intersect and what experts are doing to close the home ownership gap. Welcome to Mortgage Desk. Today you'll be listening to an exclusive interview that features Mayor Brown partner Ori Lev, a founding member of the CFPB, where he served as a Deputy Enforcement Director for Litigation. In today's interview, Ori discusses the most recent ruling in Sailor Law versus the CFPB. Ori, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So in this case, um, the Sailor Law versus CFPB, previously the court declared the Bureau's single director was unconstitutional. So can you give readers maybe a brief overview of um, why this wasn't the end of the case and, and what this new ruling is? Sure. So Kayla Law was a case that grew out of uh, a civil investigative demand or a CID that was issued by the CFPB uh, to Sayla Law. A CID is basically an administrative subpoena. And Sayla Law challenged that subpoena because, uh, for other, among other reasons, it said the Bureau's structure was unconstitutional. And that's the case that made its way to the Supreme Court. This has been an issue that had been um, litigated and argued for a decade since the CFPB's founding. And what the Supreme Court held in, in, in its uh, decision in Salem Law was that the structure that Congress set up where the CFPB has a single director and under the Dodd-Frank Act, the president couldn't remove that director uh, unless, uh, you know, there was malfeasance. 
that that was unconstitutional because it impeded the president's executive powers and that those executive powers include the ability to supervise and remove the individuals who are exercising the president's executive authority on his behalf. And so the only, the only aspect of the CFPB that the Supreme Court found unconstitutional was that single clause in the statute that gave the director protection from being fired, essentially, by the president. Um, and the other part of the Supreme Court's decision was that that part of the statute was what's known as uh, severable from the rest of the statute, meaning it could just be cut out of the law, that uh, the Supreme Court decided that if Congress knew that this was unconstitutional, it would rather have a CFPB that had a director who could be fired by the president than not have a CFPB at all, you know, not just strike down the whole agency. And so that was the Supreme Court's decision. On a going forward basis, it essentially leaves the CFPB with all of its powers and authorities intact. It just means that the CFPB director uh, can be fired, for example, by President Biden once he assumes office. In terms of the SALA law case itself and prior other other CFPB actions that are pending around the country, the Supreme Court essentially punted. The SALA law asked the court to dismiss the case, dismiss the CID against it, and say, look, this was issued by an agency that was run by a director who you have just told us um, had this unconstitutional uh, removal protection, and you should dismiss the CID. And the Supreme Court said... We're not going to decide that issue. We're going to send it back down to the lower courts for them to decide whether the agency validly ratified the CID, whether they were able to essentially make the decision to reaffirm the decision to issue the CID in the first instance in a matter that is constitutional. Um, and so that's why it wasn't the end of the case. And the most recent ruling is what happened when the case was sent back down to the Court of Appeals um, to look at that question and whether the CFPB had validly ratified the decision to issue this administrative subpoena to state of law. Well, you're, you're certainly right that this has been a, a, a decade-long battle for, for the CFPB. I mean, going through it, it's been declared unconstitutional so many times by different courts, and then they uh, walk it back when they... Uh, when they appeal and then, and it's kind of been going back and forth for a while now. I've seen numerous companies try to sue and then, and then the cases end up getting dropped. So it's definitely been a, a back and forth battle and until, um, last year when it went to the Supreme Court. So in this, uh, in this ruling, the Ninth Circuit Court ruled to uphold the civil investigative demand of the CID that you're talking about. Can you maybe explain it, what exactly is a CID and what does it mean? Why does Sailor want that washed back? What, what does it mean? Sure. So a CID is, is essentially a subpoena, right? It's a, a demand for information. Um, they typically include a demand for documents. Um, about the company, how it's set up, its policies and procedures uh, regarding certain issues that the CFPB is investigating. Um, it can include a demand for testimony, like a deposition, so somebody will have to sit down under oath and answer questions from the CFPB attorney. And they can include um, extensive data demands, you know, for um you know, every time you've sold this product, you know, details about it and the price and the date and, and um, lots of, they'll give you, you know, a whole series of variables that they want in, in a data production. Um, so they can be 
burdensome to comply with. Um, you know, you got to make sure you're figuring out, getting the right information and, and, and presenting it to the agency. Um, um, the CIDs aren't self-enforcing, so the only way the CSPB can compel somebody to actually comply with one of these demands is to go to court and ask a court to enforce it. And that's what happened in the Salem Law case. This, they issued a CID to Salem Law. Salem Law said, we're not going to comply. You're an unconstitutional agency. And then the CFPB sued Salem Law and asked the court to order them to comply with the CID. That case went up to the Supreme Court. Salem Law wanted the Supreme Court to essentially dismiss the CFPB's lawsuit against them. They didn't do that. And in the most recent ruling, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals also didn't do that. And, and what the court held was that the current CFPB director, Kathy Kraninger, had validly ratified the decision to uh, to issue the CID, right? After the Supreme Court's decision, Kathy Kraninger signed a decision saying, I affirm the decision to issue the CID to say my law. And the Ninth Circuit said um, that was valid. And the case will now go back to the district court, but essentially Salem Law is going to be ordered by the court now to produce all of the information that the CFPB has demanded in the CID, and that's going to continue on as a CFPB enforcement investigation. That is how the CFPB conducts its investigations. They might issue more CIDs to say la law, and then eventually they'll decide to either take action against them or close the investigation with no action. So to be um, super clear, the the CID in itself is not the CFPB accusing um, Salah of any kind of wrongdoing. It's more of an investigation, uh, information gathering um, procedure. Do they can they issue a CID without um, any evidence of wrongdoing, without any even suspicion of wrongdoing, or or would this case be a case where where they've kind of seen some stuff and and want to dig a little bit further? Well. Typically, so you're asking both a legal question and a practical question. I, I think the legal question, um, you know, the CFPB's view is that they can issue one of these CIDs just to make sure the law is being complied with. Um, I think there's some debate about that. As a practical matter, though, the CFPB, they have limited resources like any agency, and they decide to open an investigation because they have some reason that they think something is is amiss, right? That, that, that they've gotten some kind of tip. They've seen a consumer complaint. They've gotten a tip on their whistleblower line. They've gotten referral from another agency. In the case of Say La Law, I think their name came up in the course of another investigation. So there's something that has caused the agency to say, we want to investigate more and understand what's happening because we think there might be a violation of the law. And most CFPB enforcement investigations do end up with an enforcement action, right, with the agency either settling its claims or bringing its claims in court where they do accuse the party of wrongdoing. Not all of them, but most of them do. Um, but you are right that at this juncture, there's no allegation of wrongdoing against Salem Law. It's just an information request. Okay, um, so walking back a little bit to something you said earlier, um, you had mentioned that uh, Director Kraninger validly ratified the CID and, and basically signed off saying, yes, they still want to do that, and that action came after the Supreme Court's ruling, which is why the Ninth Circuit upheld that 
it was um, okay, and 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 that's what they based their decision on. It actually, if you read through the documents, they specifically said that they were not ruling on whether um, former acting director Mick Mulvaney's actions were constitutional, and they said that there was no need to rule on that because Kroeninger had um, had ratified it. So, do you think this leaves the door open for other challenges that? Um, we saw before the Supreme Court hearing, since they didn't actually rule on any decision that was made previously. So, so you're right that the issue, right, when it went to the Supreme Court, Director Kraninger obviously hadn't yet ratified the decision because the Supreme Court hadn't yet ruled. But what the CFPB had argued in Salem Law, and they argued this in a number of other cases, was that when Mick Mulvaney was the acting director, he had implicitly ratified the bringing of these cases, right? He authorized continuing the cases. And because Mick Mulvaney was in an acting capacity, he wasn't protected by the unconstitutional provision. Like the president could have fired him any day. And that therefore somehow a remedy. And that was the CFPB's original argument. After the Supreme Court's decision, Director Kraninger ratified the issuance of the CID in the Salem Law case. She also issued separate ratifications in the several dozen pending lawsuits that the CFPB has, their enforcement lawsuits, where they sued companies alleging wrongdoing. And in each one of those, she's issued a separate document saying, I ratify the decision to bring that action. So the Ninth Circuit decision only governs Salem Law and other cases that might be pending in the Ninth Circuit. So even there, there's going to be differences because some of it turns on the facts. Lots of these cases are pending elsewhere in the country, and the Salem Law decision is, is going to be persuasive, maybe, but not binding on those other courts. I don't think that the, the question about Mulvaney is the thing that leaves the door open for challenges. I think now that Craninger has ratified all of these actions, in most cases, maybe not all, but in most cases, that's going to be the focus, is whether her ratification was sufficient to save the case for the CFPB. And the one issue that Salem Law doesn't really address, um, well, or it addresses but doesn't answer for other cases, is the question of timing. Because there's case law that says that if an agency is going to ratify a prior decision, right, if there's an earlier decision that's somehow um, tainted, here, for example, because it was made by a CFPB director who wasn't subject to removal by the president, and an agency needs to ratify that decision, it has to have, at the time that it ratifies it, it has to have have the power to have made the original decision. What that really boils down to is, has the statute of limitations on your action run out before ratification? Because if the statute of limitations has run out, and now you're ratifying it, the argument is, it's too late. You can't take that ratification action. In Selah law, that wasn't an issue because the Ninth Circuit said this is just a CID. It's not an enforcement action. There is no statute of limitations that applies to issuing a CID. So the, C- the CFPB can always issue a CID. So the ratification was fine. In lots of other cases that are pending around the country, parties have raised the argument that the ratification that the CFPB is relying on was too late because the statute of limitations would have run. And the CFPB is arguing in response that that it hasn't run or that if it has run, it should be what's known as told. 
And that means, yeah, maybe the statute of limitations would have run, but the whole period this lawsuit was pending, you shouldn't count towards the statute of limitations. And that's where we're still waiting and decisions from the courts uh, to come out, and we'll see how they come out and whether they're consistent with each other or inconsistent, in which case, you know, this issue might go back to the Supreme Court. But that's the current battleground uh, in the pending CFPB lawsuits is about the validity of ratification and how the statute of limitations of those actions plays into that decision. That's really interesting, and I'm going to be really curious to see how these play out. There's a lot of um, a lot of factors that go into it and a, a lot of different um things to consider in, in each individual case. So I'd be really curious to see how, how some of these play out. So I want to shift gears just a little bit and get your opinion on uh, the future of the CFPB. As we shift administrations and, and we're moving over to a Biden administration, uh, what do you think, what kind of regulatory reign do you think we should expect to see from, from the Bureau? So, uh, you know, we do expect that there will be a new CFPB director um, in light of the Supreme Court's decision because President Biden can uh, fire Kathy Craninger if she doesn't uh, resign. Um, and we're going to see a CFPB that presumably is going to look more like the CFPB did under President Obama, um, a bit more muscular, a bit more uh, focused on consumer protection and, and less uh solicitous of business concerns. Um, on the enforcement front, I think, you know, th- there has been some change, but there's also been some continuity, and that, that gets lost in the, in the shuffle, I think. Um, what we've seen under Director Kraninger has been a continued focus on unfair, deceptive, and abusive action practices, or what's called UDAM. Um, and that was true under under the CFPB under President Obama, and I expect it will be true as we uh, continue into President Biden's administration. That is, the, the, the nature and substance of the legal claims they're bringing hasn't changed much. Um, they did not revert to being a an agency that was just looking for ticky-tacky regulatory violations. Um, on the other hand, we saw a drop in the number of cases and the enforcement front, we saw a sharp drop in the number of new investigations that were opened on the enforcement front. We saw a focus, um, a little more of a focus on small actors in the fraud end of the market, uh, and we saw less aggressive remedies under Kathy Craninger. And those are all things that I think will flip back. That is, you're going to see more enforcement action investigations opened. It takes some time for those investigations to work through the pipeline, but then you're going to see more enforcement actions brought, and you're going to see more aggressive remedies sought in terms of consumer redress um, requirements and the imposition of civil money penalties. Um, and you know, you're probably going to see a slightly more uh, um, aggressive regulatory regime in terms of, of, of regulations. That that also takes time because uh, you need to follow uh, the rulemaking process if you want to undo or change regulations that were promulgated under uh, under Kathy Craninger. So you mentioned um, that he will likely choose a, a new CFPB director. I, I've seen the argument floated a couple times now that while the Biden administration could remove Director Kraninger, 
uh, at will, he, that he can't also appoint her successor. It would have to basically just fall to the next one in line at the Bureau. Is there any legitimacy to that argument, or is it going to be an easy, um, he just appoints who he wants to appoint, and, and they're uh, confirmed and, and yeah. put in place? Yeah, so uh, it, it's a good question. I think it, it's an open question. Um, the source of the argument, well, so starting off, we start off with the state law law decision, right? That's very clear. The Supreme Court said you can remove Director Crane, right? That, there's no argument about that anymore. Right. And then the question is, okay, does it, does, um, the Deputy Director of the Bureau take over? That's what's provided for in the Dodd-Frank Act. Or can President Biden appoint an acting director pending confirmation in the Senate? Um, and there are some limitations on who an acting director can be by statute. Uh, but the big question, and the one you're raising, is that the, the, the law that provides the president the power to appoint an acting director says that he can do that in the case where the person who's currently in charge either dies, resigns, or is un- otherwise unable to perform the functions and duties of the office. Hopefully, the, you know, Director Kramer is not going to die. She might resign. And if she resigns, which wouldn't be um, crazy, I mean, she herself took the position that the statute should allow the president to remove her, and she could say, okay, I'm, I'm going to resign and give the president the power to appoint his whoever he wants. If she resigns, there's no question that President Biden could appoint an acting director. Other than, you know, someone other than the deputy. If she doesn't resign and he fires her, there's no question he can fire her. But then the question is, is being fired mean that somebody is unable to perform the functions and duties of the office? Or, or not? And, th- and that's where this argument comes up that, well, that, that, that clause doesn't include being fired. And, um, it could be that there could be some uh, some litigation over that. Um, I'm not sure who exactly would be the person to bring that litigation. Um, I also think that now that we know the results of the Senate races in Georgia and that there's going to be a Democratic uh, slim, but a Democratic majority in the Senate, this is going to become much less of an issue because presumably President Biden can get his nominee for uh, the bureau director confirmed. Um, fairly quickly if necessary if, if Kramer doesn't resign uh, and if people claim you know that he can't appoint who he wants he'll just get the Senate to act uh, more promptly on that confirmation. That makes sense. Lots lots still up in the air and um, I think it's going to be an interesting year for sure. But yeah, thanks so much for, for being on today and, and for coming on with me and, and sharing some of your expertise. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now more than ever, the housing industry is looking to its leaders for answers. That's why each week, the Housing News Podcast invites a new mortgage, fintech, or real estate executive to the show to provide its listeners with more perspective on the announcements and news stories crossing HousingWire's news desk. Hosted by Sarah Wheeler and produced by Alcina Lloyd, the Housing News Podcast is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. 
Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode and we'll catch everyone back here again tomorrow.